Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Hello, friends. Welcome back to the Bill Press Pod and welcome to this week's Roundtable where we look back over the big stories of the week with three crack political reporters. Well, if you think the coronavirus is over, think again. This week, both the Boston Marathon and the world's largest outdoor rodeo in Cheyenne, Wyoming, were canceled. A sure sign that we're not out of the woods yet. Plus, as every state begins to reopen, over a dozen states report more cases and more deaths from the pandemic. In other news, Twitter slaps Donald Trump on the wrist and he lashes back. Joe Biden emerges from his basement wearing a mask. Minneapolis on fire after yet another unarmed black man is killed by a white police officer. And Donald Trump, yes, Donald Trump, accuses Joe Scarborough of murder. A lot to chew on for this week's panel, so let's get started. Addie Baer joins us, political reporter for BuzzFeed. Hello, Addie. Hi, Bill. Sam Baker joining us for the first time, healthcare editor at the great Axios. Hello, Sam. Hey, Bill. Good to have you with us. And Jason Dick back again, deputy editor of Roll Call. Hi, Jason. Howdy, Bill. Good to be here. All right. So um, coronavirus, as big as it is, I want to start with the breaking news today, which is out of Minneapolis for the third night in a row. Uh, the protests continued, and the protests each night have turned more violent. We've seen now stores looted, stores burned, cars and trucks set on fire. Even uh, the uh, one of the police precinct stations where the four officers um, were assigned set on fire last night. The National Guard has been called in. The four police officers have been fired, but no charges uh, leveled against them as yet. And overnight, uh, Donald Trump said, called the protesters thugs and said, when the looting starts, the shooting starts, at which point Twitter uh, censored, if you will, or at least put a flag on his tweet saying he was glorifying violence. Uh, We've seen this um, so often before. Jason, what is it in the 21st century there is still so much white police officer on unarmed black man um, killing. Uh, I mean, it's a good question. I mean, part of it is that it doesn't seem to change regardless how shocking uh, the the latest incident is. It just never uh, seems to change the equation and we get another one. And um, I don't know if it's a kind of a lack of self-awareness. I can't help but think that every police department, uh, regardless of how big or small, is doing some kind of training, you know, about how to diffuse situations or how to just not be, you know, uh, stupid in a, in a, uh, in your uh, line of work and, and uh, needlessly like incite violence. Uh, it, it just, I, I think that that's the, that's the issue uh, that we're dealing with. I don't know why it doesn't change, but it, certainly the reaction uh, is, is one of like, you know, why do we keep seeing this? Like with, with such like kind of sickening regularity. And uh, Sam, what struck me, it still strikes me uh, as so incomprehensible is why so the one police officer clearly was choking this guy and the guy is uh, is begging uh to be able to to breathe um and the other three police officers just stand there yeah i mean i <laughs> that, why no sh- reaction i don't know i that shocks me too and I, I like i just don't it feels like there are no answers to any of this or no, you know, no satisfactory ones. I, you know, you hate to paint with a broad brush, but it seems like sort of a a cultural problem within 
law enforcement. You know, we've seen this in so many different cities in so many parts of the country, but with so many similar circumstances. And, you know, I guess the the political response firing the officers is a little bit more is a little bit better this time, you know, as opposed to mm-hmm. some of the digging in that we've seen in the past. But that's kind of giving a lot of credit for what I think a lot of people would fairly consider baby steps. So, uh, and um, Addie, this was a time perhaps when the president could have said, uh, "Look, um, this is outrageous. What happened? We're going to get to the bottom of it." But in the meantime please stay home or at least protest peacefully. Uh, that's what's called for here. Uh, instead, the president went out, called the protesters thugs, and uh, basically called on the National National Guard to open fire on them. Is, is Trump blowing another opportunity? Oh, I mean, obviously. But also, in some ways, it's one of those classic Trump things where you are both stunned and um, and feel like, what else were you supposed to expect? Like, there was no chance that Donald Trump was going to react to this um, as the sort of consoler in chief that, uh, you know, most people believe the president ought to be. And at the same time, it was, when I first saw that tweet last night, I, I honestly thought that it was not real. It was shocking to me. And yet it was Donald Trump, right? And yet uh, it was real. Yeah. And, and, and I, I feel like, Bill, you know, that, that one of the things that's sort of comes out in times of crisis, whether it's, uh, you know, a, a, a war or whether it's uh, a plague like uh, we're dealing with, is that people become more of themselves. Uh, they're, they're, you know, they, they lean into who they are. And I mean, this, I'm not trying to be an amateur psychologist here, but it seems like, you know, the, the president has not changed his approach. If anything, he has intensified it. Uh, he, he falls back on the things that are familiar to him. And this is the stuff that he feels comfortable with. I think that's I, a really, really good, good way of, of saying it, Jason. Uh, and, <laughs> I, uh, and I couldn't help but think back to Charleston, uh, white protesters, um, walking through the streets, the Jews shall not replace us. One woman killed uh, by, by their, uh, in their actions. And the president praised them as some very fine people. Here you have African-American protesters in Minneapolis. Uh, the president calls them thugs and says they ought to be shot. Uh, Sam, pretty clear example <laughs> of uh, racism on the part of a, a man we've seen signs of racism before. I mean, you can go all the way back to the Central Park Five before he was ever in politics. And, you yeah. know, like when there would be no sort of what does Donald Trump think about this? Like no one would care in the way that we care when he's the president. Um, but yeah, he's always been, I mean, comfortable to say the least uh, using race as a wedge issue to sort of put it coldly uh, and leaning into to racial division. Uh, and of course, uh, I just want to be sure everyone everyone knows this does come fast on the heels of the murder of Ahmed Arbery down in Georgia, not by police officers, by two uh, vigilantes, uh, if you will. Again, a young unarmed black man, and in that case, is all three people, uh, men in that in that incident, uh, have been charged with murder. Uh, I hate to drag this down to the political level, but um, Addie. There may be one other victim of the violence in Minneapolis, and that could be Amy Klobuchar when she was district attorney of uh, Minneapolis. Uh, She did not prosecute this same police officer uh, who uh, it looks like committed murder on the video. Um, She failed to prosecute him when he had been charged in yet another, he and some other officers in yet another act of violence against uh, African-Americans in Minneapolis. Uh, Having let him go then, isn't that going to be very hard to explain for Amy Klobuchar today? Oh, I certainly think so. During the primary, there was a lot of discussion about uh, Kamala Harris's history um, in law enforcement. And I think less of a conversation about Amy Klobuchar's uh, law enforcement. A little bit, not a lot, right? Yeah, it it was not a lot. I would be, I I would, I think that you're, you're absolutely on the money that if she were to be um, chosen as Joe Biden's running mate in this moment, that that conversation would um, 
get very loud very quickly. I think that it would be it would be um, a, a really. I, I I think you're. I think you're right. I just don't think that this is. Uh, I think this is gonna. Like you said, it's sort of gross to even quite talk about the politics, and I'm stuttering even over it as I talk. But but I agree it's, with you. I think it is not a not a good look for Amy Klobuchar. It is the reality, isn't it, Jason? I mean, she's basically out of the running today. Uh, yeah, and and I I mean I'll say too that the you know in when Amy Klobuchar was making her you know for first foray into federal politics you know when she was running in two thousand six. I mean, this was the, the this was the thing that was looked upon as the winning combination. You know, she was a woman. She was a crime fighter. You know, she was you know, her resume was the selling point. It wasn't just that she was a fresh face uh, and she won easily in that race. So I, I, I think that your your resume and your accomplishments and your legislative record and your prosecutor's record are all fair game, negative or positive for your for your opponents. And it you know, we don't get a lot of uh, do overs uh, in, in, in situations like this. Uh, but I mean, it, it's, I don't, I don't know if she's done, you know, completely in electoral politics, I wouldn't go that far. But certainly, you know, with, you know, the, the you know, Joe Biden is, is well aware that he has his own Achilles heel, uh, because of his support of, uh, you know, anti crime legislation, and mm-hmm. I just get get tough stuff, uh, mandatory sentencing, and so forth. And so I don't think that he's going to, you know, I wouldn't think that he would put somebody on the ticket uh, who who has the same weaknesses. I mean, he probably he knows that he needs to have somebody who will compliment him and not uh, aggro, you know, raise more questions. All right. So now let's move into the coronavirus pandemic. We are week, by my count, week number 11, since the president said this is a major crisis facing the country. 11 weeks we've been at it. 1.8 numbers I saw this morning, the latest 1.8 million cases now in the United States, 103,000 dead and 41 million Americans, one out of every four American workers out of a job. So Sam, as the healthcare editor of Axios, you've been doing great reporting on this. Where are we now? Um, are we now on the down curve or are we still climbing? How do you, uh, how do you see it? It sort of depends what kind of timeline you want to look at. Like right now, yes, we are on the down curve. The number of cases in the U.S., is going down, which is great, obviously. But we're not at the end of this. We don't really know where we are sort of in the the story of coronavirus. But there's a good chance we're still in the first act. Um, So, you know, in in the immediate term, things are getting better nationwide. Things are getting better in most states, which is good news, not all states, but most of them. Um, But, you know, we know nothing's really changed, right? Like the virus didn't get weaker in the summer. Like people thought we didn't find a treatment. The only thing that's happened, we did one intervention, which was the lockdown. It mostly worked as, you know, sort of stunning as it is to say that a hundred thousand deaths is a, you know, the product of something that worked. Um, but, but we don't know what comes next. So we're, we're in uncharted territory here and the number of cases could, could easily go back up. Uh, and Jason, we've seen that in some areas. Um, for example, I just saw last night in Alabama, which was one of the first ones to reopen, uh, they've had 5,000 new cases in the last 14 days. So right. um, have we moved maybe too soon, too fast? Um, too far, I mean, too, it, too, far it, too fast, I guess. That's what I'm saying. I mean, it, yeah. it seems like, you know, the on, you know, on one hand, you've got cities like New York and, and Washington and in areas of the, of the country who are trying to figure out a way to get to safely, you know, reintroduce, you know, life, you know, to to people. Um, and, th- and that's been a painstaking process. But on the other hand, you have people just saying, like, you know, we're we need to do this and it's just happening. And, and it seems like a little haphazard in some parts of the country. And I, I don't know, I don't know enough about Alabama's uh, healthcare system and, and, and so forth to, to say that they, they messed it up by not, by doing or not doing something. But, you know, if you, if you look at just the, the, um, you know, the way that we're approaching it, it's, it's not, it's, it's very decentralized. It's, it's exactly like the American political system is set up. And that has its, its, its real, 
blind spots. And, you know, that, I mean, I was, I'm, I'm sure some of you also follow Andy Slavitt uh, with his podcast and, and Twitter is the, the former uh, head of Medicare and Medicaid in the Obama administration. And, you know, his, his latest, um, you know, missives uh, last night were about how, you know, in Florida, they seem to have gotten COVID under control, but hmm, they happen to have a pneumonia spike. And, and, <laughs> and it's like, you know, there, so there may be, there may be people who are, are just being exposed to this, um, maybe they're not going to the hospital. Maybe they're, you know, it just seems like we, like Sam says, we're still in chapter one and we're at a hundred thousand deaths. And just mm-hmm. to, to put it into context, you know, in the, in the 1918 influenza epidemic that kid killed 50 million people worldwide, you know, about 675,000 Americans are recorded as dying by the CDC, but that's a real rough estimate because so many people died without proper reporting. It could be much higher than that. In the 57 flu epidemic, uh, you know, 100,000 Americans died. In the 68 flu epidemic, another 100,000 Americans died. So, you know, we're, we're past these sort of grim milestones for the endpoints of those previous epidemics, which is really scary. Uh, and, Addie, when we did pass this milestone today, one that uh, uh, President Trump insisted we would never reach, but when we did pass it today, uh, I thought it was interesting the reaction uh, on the part of the, uh, Donald Trump and Joe Biden. Joe Biden, um, from his basement, uh, put out a statement to the American people uh, on the passing of this milestone. Here's the former vice president. Today is one of those moments. 100,000 lives have now been lost to this virus, each one leaving behind a family that will never again be whole. I think I know what you're feeling. You feel like you're being sucked into a black hole in the middle of your chest. It's suffocating. Your heart is broken. There's nothing but a feeling of emptiness right now. To all of you who are hurting so badly, I'm so sorry for your loss. I know there's nothing I or anyone else can say or do to dull the sharpness of the pain you feel right now. But I can promise you from experience, the day will come when the memory of your loved one will bring a smile to your lips before it brings a tear to your eyes. My prayer for all of you is that day will come sooner rather than later. But I promise you it will come. When it does, you know you can make it. Obviously speaking from his own tragic personal experience, uh, and yet, Addie, it was almost like the president didn't want to acknowledge this. It was only two days later that in a tweet, he expressed condolences to the families of the 100,000 lives that were lost. I mean, what's going on with Donald Trump? It's like he doesn't want to accept the reality. I think he also doesn't want to accept the responsibility. I think that acknowledging um, the mass death would require Trump to self-reflect about how his administration has handled this crisis um, as it unfolded in the U.S. And you know, it's it's pretty clear to everyone at this point that they did not take the coronavirus as seriously as they should have. And um, it, it absolutely, I think he, he doesn't want to accept the reality and he doesn't want to accept the responsibility. Uh, nor does he want to wear a mask, obviously. Right? <laughs> absolutely not. <laughs> Which he has shown uh, on, on several occasions. So the, the, what, what the president would like to do, of course, is change the subject. Uh, and I'd like to mention three ways he tried to change the subject this way, get your get your reaction to each of them. Uh, first of all, he, he uh, pivoted to Barack Obama, uh, not just blaming Barack Obama for the uh, for the pandemic, but accusing Barack Obama of, quote, the greatest political crime in U.S. history. Jason, please tell us what was this crime? Uh, I I have to say that, uh, you know, when when it comes to the so-called Obamagate, um, Donald Trump is perhaps the greatest uh, postmodern novelist I've ever read uh, because I can't figure out the plot. But I know it's there somewhere. (laughs) Sam, any idea what he's talking about? (laughs) No. And I've, you know, like just personally, I've been covering coronavirus and spending all my time on that and kept seeing these, you know. A tweet here or there, Obamagate, Obamagate. Finally, one night I was like, I got to figure out what he's talking about here and like sit down and, you know, I must have just missed it, whatever it was. I got just as lost as Jason. I thought I'm just going to 
stop trying to figure this out. I don't think it can be figured out. <laughs> okay, well, so then, Eddie, the other thing the president's pivoted to is we cannot have anybody vote by mail because that is that just means massive fraud and a rigged election, and I'm going to prevent any state from allowing people to vote by mail. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And and I think I said this last time we talked. This is this vote by mail thing has been an obsession of him of his for for months at this point. But one thing he often argues is that vote by mail states are overwhelmingly democratic. Um I am from Utah. Uh there is no world where someone would describe Utah as overwhelmingly democratic. They don't love Trump the way a lot of uh, Republican states do, but they are certainly not a liberal state. And it is a full vote by mail state. And I love to just remind people of that because um, there is no there is no rhyme or reason or logic or reality to the president's attacks on vote by mail. That's it. Period. Right. And I think, we can, and, and I think, and I think a period, full stop, whatever uh, Sean Spicer said. And I think we can leave it at that. The one, uh, the other pivot on Donald Trump's part, trying to change the subject, which is not so funny, is from the Rose Garden, from the presidential podium, in back of the presidential, standing in back of the presidential seal, the president of the United States accused Joe Scarborough of murdering uh, an intern who worked in his office, Florida office, 19 years ago. A t- totally baseless story that he has dredged up and repeated for three days straight from the White House. And Jason, number one, your comment on that. And then on Twitter, on that case, doing absolutely nothing. Yeah, I, and and who knows if that was one of the things that 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 snapped you know twitter into looking at some of the other things i mean it i think i think i when i first heard that there was a you know a warning label or a, or a fact check on on trump's tweets i assumed it was the scarborough stuff uh and then i was surprised to see that it was the the vote by mail uh, uh claims um you know th- this is like this is the this this one of these weird conspiracy theories that Scarborough killed this intern and that's why he retired. And, and, you know, it's, it's kind of like the Vince Foster stuff to me, you know, it's just, it's just this, this thing that will never go away or the Kennedy assassination. And, you know, I, I just, I think that this is one of those, you know, I don't know if it really moves the needle so much anymore in terms of like where, you know, where people's heads are about, I, about this people, you know, like either love Scarborough or hate him or, or they don't even know who he is in most, most likely. Um, and it, it, I, I think that this is just one of those, like, you know, I mean, the, the president has a number of dog whistles that he can pick up at any any moment. You know, a break in clay in case of uh, hundred thousand deaths and coronavirus. <laughs> yeah, and and this is you know he tried this one out and you know it you know it had the added benefit of uh, pissing off uh, uh, Scarborough and and Mike Brzezinski and then you know. For him, you know, he, then he got a crisis in Minneapolis. So it's like that, that he feels much more comfortable with, uh, you know, it's just like this, he, he's, he has this tool, you know, this tool shed filled with these, uh, these sort of distractometers and, you know, he just deploys them every once in a while. Addy, how does the president believe that this would help him politically? Bill, the fact that you would like me to get into Donald Trump's brain and <laughs> explain it to you. Or let um, me just ask you, does this help him politically? I, it's hard to see how. <laughs> I don't I don't know. Here's what I will say. Um, I think he gets bored. Honestly, I think he gets bored. And I think he likes to rile up his base. I think that he f- thinks it's fun to attack um cable news uh you know anchors in particular like i don't think it helps him politically i don't think there's any logic to it <laughs> and maybe we should stop looking for logic to it so sam <laughs> yes <laughs> so sam the president's response um after twitter put fact checks on his two statements uh, about voter fraud uh, and now this morning, uh, I put a fact check on his uh, inciting violence in Minneapolis or a warning. His response yesterday was to sign an executive order saying we're going to clamp down on social media and we're going to basically maybe take away their liability, so to take away their protection. So they're going to be liable for any 
um, untruths or any libelous attacks that appear on their sites. This was Donald, Donald Trump's executive action. Sam, I don't know. When I look at that, it seems to me that could come back and bite Donald Trump in the butt, right? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, because he's the one who puts more of this stuff out there than anybody else. Right. The actions, I mean, I don't think much will come of them, but, you know, if the things that he's talking about actually happened, all of the, either the legal requirement or just the incentive would be for these platforms to police the content that users post more and to exercise more what some people would call discretion and others would call censorship, but like, you know, get more involved in, in what can be posted and what can't. And it is yeah. things like accusing Joe Scarborough of murder that they will look for first. Right. Uh, and Jason, it seems to me that there's a parallel here uh, with Donald Trump and television. I mean, he is who he is because of television. And yet he spends half of his time attacking the TV networks, right? And he is who he is largely because of Twitter. And now he's attacking Twitter. Uh, it, it, we got a little pattern here. <laughs> yeah, it, it is pretty remarkable because, I mean, and that, that was one of the things that I, I, I thought also when, you know, when all the, the chatter started about this executive order, which apparently has been, you know, the the, the, the red button he's wanted to push for a long time, uh, if, if you believe the uh, coverage about it being under consideration for, you know, as long as a year. Um, no one has benefited more politically from uh, social media than Donald Trump. And, um, and I, I think, you know, you and Sam are right. Absolutely. That, that this is the kind of thing, like, be careful what you ask for, <laughs> uh, b because, you know, this is, uh, this is the way I've always felt about, you know, some of the, um, some of the threats to investigate Obamagate, for instance, is that, um, if, if you really want to bring, you know, folks from the intelligence community into a, an open hearing to talk about Russian inter interference in the 2016 election, well, guess who that might hurt more <laughs> than, <laughs> right. I don't right. think anybody gives a crap about, like what Jim Comey is doing these days, but it certainly could reflect poorly on them and and the and the president who they're ostensibly trying to protect. So yeah, I, I think that there is a potential for backlash and and but it is it is a part of the pattern, you know. I mean, like the uh, Trump uses a, a a a shotgun, you know, when when things are when you know when a lot less is called for. Right. All right. Let's take a little break here um, with our panel, Addie Baird, Sam Baker and Jason Dick here on the Bill Press pod. And then we'll get back and welcome Joe Biden to the mix. It is the Bill Press pod and this week's roundtable. This week's roundtable brought to you by the Teamsters Union, the great men and women of the United uh, the Brotherhood of Teamsters under the leadership of President Jim Hoffa, a real powerhouse among American labor unions, the largest and the most powerful of our labor unions, representing everyone, they say, from A to Z, everyone from uh, airline pilots to zookeepers. We salute the members of the Teamsters. They are on the front lines, particularly those truck drivers during the time of this coronavirus pandemic, uh, delivering America's goods that we need to keep going. So we salute them for their good work and thank them for their support of the Bill Press Pod. <sighs> the comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car selling command center. Thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way. Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. 
That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. And we're back with this week's roundtable. Addie Baird from BuzzFeed, Sam Baker from Axios, and Jason Dick from a Roll Call. Uh, we did see uh, Vice President Biden, former Vice President Biden, emerge from his basement uh, this week, uh, laying a wreath at the memorial at the Delaware uh, Memorial Bridge to the veterans who've lost their lives in uh, America's wars, uh, wearing a mask, as was his wife, Jill Biden, wearing a mask. Uh, and he called Donald Trump actually a fool for um, not wearing his mask and criticizing Joe Biden for wearing a mask. Addie, this is the new get tough Joe Biden. I guess so. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like every question you've asked me this morning, I'm like, I don't know, Bill, there's no rhyme or reason to the world. <laughs> but I, I, I do think, um, I do think that the mask war is uh, a bit funny and and one of the most ridiculous uh, because it's uh, about saving lives and keeping people healthy. And, um, you know, like you mentioned earlier, Trump has just refused to wear a mask every time he goes to, you know, tour an auto plant or, um, you know, every time he every time he travels, uh, you see these pictures of everyone around him wearing a mask and then. You get a statement from the White House of, oh, he was wearing a mask backstage and then he he took it off so that he could, uh, you know, speak more clearly. You know, the fact of the matter is, um, and and it's always interesting when you see some of the president's, uh, you know, defenders really say the thing that some of his the people in his administration won't. Um, And and so many people who, uh, you know, are allies of the president's said that Joe Biden's mask just looked dumb. And that, to me, is really what it's all about for Trump. He just is so aware of his image and mm-hmm. so aware of how he looks all the time. And he thinks masks look dumb and won't wear one. So, Sam, you're the expert here. I mean, just for the record, wearing a mask is a good idea, right? <laughs> yes. This is okay. a very frustrating part of the <laughs> politics of the coronavirus. <laughs> wear the mask. like. I know it kind of sucks. I don't like it either. It's better than getting coronavirus or giving someone else coronavirus. And social distancing has proven to work, correct? Yes. So that even as states open up, uh, it's important just not to go back to business as usual, let's say. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's what's so frustrating about it is like there is a way to safely partially reopen. Like I want to get out of my apartment too. I understand that, you know. We can't lock down forever, but there are things you have to do in order to get the reopening that you want. And if you won't do those things, then none of this works. Uh, Jason, one thing that is keeping Joe Biden busy in that basement, and one good reason for not going out more, maybe, is he's got a vice presidential running mate to choose. Uh, we talked earlier that Amy Klobuchar may no longer be on the list. Uh, what What do your sources tell you who's up and who's down? Um, you know, this has been one of those confounding things that like, you know, we, because we don't have as much, um, time on the road and time with political operatives face to face, you know, people Mm -hmm. will tell you things in person, uh, that they won't tell you over the phone (laughs) or, or they won't tell you, uh, on, uh, you know, over email. But, um, I mean, this seems like, you know, 
un- unlike you know the uh, um, you know the the, the Trump uh, you know vice presidential selection process, this seems to be going you know kind of by the numbers. They're doing background checks. They're they're looking at you know people like Kamala Harris. They're looking at people like Stacey Abrams. I mean, he's you know said that he's going to pick a woman. Um, and I, I can't help but think that Klobuchar was, you know, fairly high on the list for, you know, mm-hmm. uh, most of this year until a couple of days ago. Uh, but, you know, it, it's, I mean, I th- that takes some of the, uh, you know, the, the, the steam out of it, I guess, is for lack of a better term that, you know, we, we know, it, we know it'll be a woman and we know it'll probably be somebody who Biden, you know, given his age and given questions about, um, you know, how long, whether he would serve a second term needs to be somebody viewed as like, yeah, this person could be the, you know, the next president afterwards. So I wouldn't be surprised if it's in the, in that crew, uh, that fairly small crew um, of, of senators, people who have run for president, like, like Elizabeth Warren uh, and people like Abrams and, and Kamala Harris. What do you, uh, yeah, um, Stacey Abrams has ran for governor, not for president, of course, but uh, Addie, what do you hear? What do you, what do your sources tell you? You know, uh, Jason's absolutely right. It's sort of a, it's a hard time because you, like we were talking before we started recording, I haven't been to Capitol Hill since March and um, it's, it's harder to connect with sources, but I think Jason is on the money. Um, I think Biden has been pretty clear about uh, the kind of um, running mate that he wants to pick. He wants a woman. I think that increasingly, um, it's likely that that woman will be a person of color. Um, there's absolutely an argument for Elizabeth Warren, and and I can't quite get a sense of, um, you know, whether whether she is someone that Biden really wants to run with. But there has been some really interesting polling about the way that she can bring in young voters. Um, which uh, Joe Biden certainly needs. Um, she absolutely could help bridge the divide in the Democratic Party, um, you know, between between mainstream Democrats and, and progressives. Um, and, and I think she would be a really interesting choice. But I think especially given kind of the moment that we are in um, and, and how we started this conversation today, talking about uh, racial and, and police violence, I think that um, it's 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 probably pretty likely, uh, you know, that, that Biden will, will end up going with a woman of color on, on the ticket. Uh, and Sam, if you talk about, here we come home to Boston and Massachusetts, Elizabeth Warren, um, the one obstacle that, um, and by the way, uh, the uh, great Democratic pollster Stan Greenberg this week put out a column saying Elizabeth Warren is the one, she would be the best one for Biden. Uh, but there's a guy in Massachusetts by the name of, I guess, your cousin, Charlie Baker. No relation. Charlie Baker, who happens to be a, a Republican governor uh, who probably, were were she chosen and elected, would appoint a Republican senator. I, big problem. Huh? I don't think that is what do you hear a big in Boston? problem. Um, because Democrats in the state uh-huh. legislature, I believe, have a supermajority where they could pass and then override a veto mm-hmm. of uh, a bill requiring him to pick someone from the same party. I believe they could do that. They could do that. Um, right. Huh. And yeah. And I, th- I think you're right from what I know about the uh, majority in the state legislature. So that's their, that could be their backup. Yeah, so plan, I think, you know, words, right. I think if it's her, the Democrats who control the state of Massachusetts, except for, the one office of the governor will do whatever they can mm-hmm. to ensure that a Democrat replaces her. All right. Well, <laughs> your cousin, watch out. <laughs> we got that. Uh, by the way, just, just uh, for the sake of the discussion, uh, I wrote my own column this week suggesting that Susan Rice would have uh, outstanding credentials, maybe the best of anybody in terms of experience in the White House and experience in making things happen at the federal level of any of the other nominees. And I know she's under consideration, too. Um, just one question about the Senate. Um, whether Republicans are getting nervous uh, by following Donald Trump uh, 100% and looking at some of their Senate races, uh, maybe a year ago everybody said it was pretty clear there was no way the Democrats could pick up the Senate. Do you think it's looking any better for Democrats today on the Senate? Uh, Jason, start with you. 
Uh, it, it absolutely is. And, you know, th- this has been one of the big, you know, changes in the political dynamics. I mean, the, you know, the White House is, you know, this is still unstable territory and, and most likely, a, a, you know, a, a very close race that probably uh, favors Biden. The House is most likely going to stay Democratic just because of the playing field. Uh, but the Senate, I mean, you're right. A year ago, we did not think that there was a huge chance uh, that Democrats could pick it up. Um but, you know, a few things happened. One, you know, the, be, even before the pandemic struck, uh, you know, the, the candidates matter and Democrats got a really good crop of candidates. And, you know, if if you would have told me, I mean, I'm, I'm from Arizona, if you would have told me that that Martha McSally was going to, you know, just be completely uh, blown out of the water uh, by somebody who, mm-hmm. who really didn't have that much of a connection to Arizona, aside from being, you know, married to Gabby Giffords, uh, the former congresswoman, um, you know, I, I would have said like, eh, I don't know, it seems like McSally would probably learn from some of the mistakes she made in the 2018 race against Kirsten Cinema, self-correct, be, you know, fully funded and, and you know, really make it close uh, and, uh, and kind of, you know, probably win uh, the rest of the term and that has just not happened mark you know mark kelly yeah. has has out outraised her by crazy amounts of money um and and is kind of running away with that race in north carolina you know the the democrats got a great candidate in cal cunningham and and he's you know the the, the type of of person you have to run in a in a state like north carolina a, a you know a southern swing state if you will to get and then you know things like things you just hadn't really anticipated that like mm-hmm. that Steve Bullock would completely turn around the dynamics of the race in Montana and start to give Steve Daines a race. So, right. you know, and yeah. that, yeah. W- yeah, I'm sorry. Yeah. One, one thing is it is they've expanded the playing field and they're probably, they, mo- they might not win all the races, but they certainly are, are going to make Republicans sweat it out and make, you know, spend a lot of money. Uh, and Sam, one other state uh, close to you uh, that everybody's been looking at, uh, is the state of Maine with Susan Collins perhaps in trouble for the very first time? And the latest poll in her career, the latest poll I showed, showed, showed uh, Sarah Gideon uh, ahead of Susan Collins, 51 to 42. Yeah, I imagine Susan Collins is uh, actually concerned. Her, <laughs> and her forever be. mood is probably uh, very much her mood right now. <laughs> uh, and Cory Gardner, too, in Colorado. Looks like he's got mm-hmm. a, a real tough race. So yeah, people who, you know, I guess t- to Jason's point, there's sort of two things happening with the map in states like Maine and Colorado. It's like firming up that blue states are blue all the way around. And then also expanding the map into states like North Carolina and Arizona, which is where you want to be. So, uh, Eddie, one sleeper race is... And the state of Kentucky with uh, uh, Senate leader Mitch McConnell up for re-election uh, up against Amy McGrath. I thought it was uh, very interesting yesterday that the Lincoln Project, these are the non-Trumper Republicans uh, led by George Conway and Rick Wilson, among others, who uh, are very much out to uh, dethrone Donald Trump and actually supporting Joe Biden. But they've gotten involved in the Senate race in Kentucky against Mitch McConnell, and they released an ad, anti-McConnell ad yesterday, uh, about all the money that Mitch McConnell has made as Senate leader. Here's uh, the Lincoln Project ad. What will history say about Mitch McConnell? Well, he spent most of his time making deals for himself, not so much for Kentucky. Mitch didn't have money when he went to Washington 35 years ago. Today, he's one of the richest guys up there. (laughs) Rich Mitch has a nice ring to it. So what did Kentucky get in the bargain? Well, we're 40th in job opportunity, 45th in education, 43rd in healthcare. Get in the picture? With another six years of Mitch McConnell, from the holler to the horse farm, we'll still be waiting. And Mitch, he'll just be richer. Whoa, Addy, I want those guys on my side. I never want them against me, right? 
<laughs> well, it's so interesting because, like you said, um, they're they're anti-Trump Republicans, and I think that it's it makes all the sense in the world when you. Uh, of course, it's a bit surprising, um, but I think it makes all the sense in the world if you if you really want to hurt Trump, taking down Mitch McConnell is a really good way to do that. Uh, he Mitch McConnell is absolutely. Um, Trump's biggest enabler. He is. Uh, he has has really spent the Trump presidency just confirming Trump's judges, which I think will be uh, one of Trump's biggest legacies. Is the way that he has reshaped the federal bench, and um, it makes it makes a lot of sense if if you want to if you want to uh, push back against Donald Trump, trying to take down Mitch McConnell is a really smart way to do that. And, and I, and that ad is, that ad is good. It's a, it's a good ad. <laughs> Rich Mitch. It does have a little ring. It does have a ring to it. Well, uh, we've gone a little longer than we normally do. Uh, but you know what? We had a lot to talk about. So thank you so much, Addie Baird, Sam Baker, uh, and Jason Dick for joining us on today's panel, but we don't let you go and won't let you go before we ask you, was there any one story this week? week that kind of captured your attention, made you stop and say, wow, look at that. You want to share with us, Jason? Yeah. And this is a, a little bittersweet and, and it's not um, on, on a global <laughs> scale, but it, it, it's something that, you know, it definitely affects the dining patterns of me and you, Bill. Oh, uh, yeah. and, and, that, and that's that uh, Emily Hiles um, kind of appreciation in the Washington Post of the closing of Montmartre and uh, Seventh Hill, these, these uh, you know, two restaurants side by side owned by the same guys. Uh, one was, a, you know, kind of traditional country French restaurant, a bistro, and then the other was a pizza place. And, you know, it, it, it's one casualty among many in, in small businesses due to the pandemic. Um, and it had been there for 20 years, you know, restaurants usually don't make it that long, but it was just such a, it was such a kick in the, in the stomach, uh, you know, to me in more ways than one. Uh, and, <laughs> and, and I, I just, it was really, I really grieved, you know, when, when I heard about Montmartre and I thought Emily did a really, you know, kind of just a great job of, of, you know, illustrating why it was an important place because it was so not fancy. It was just a place people gathered and, and, and people felt at home. And, uh, it was, it, it really made me stop, you know, and, and think because, you know, you can get overwhelmed with, with numbers and tweets and, and, uh, and things like that. But this, this was hit home on a personal level. And I thought Emily did a great job in, in summing up why it's a, why it was an important thing. Uh, indeed, indeed. And as a fellow Hillite, uh, I also share the loss, been to Montmartre many, many times. Um, but it was symbolic of what is happening all around the country. And, uh, Everybody in every neighborhood is going to have a story like that. Uh, I'm I'm afraid that to, to say, I've seen numbers that as many as one third of the restaurants may never reopen, yeah. uh, and they're going to be among them a lot of our favorites. Sam, what caught your attention this week? Uh, I finally found a coronavirus side effect that I have absolutely no sympathy for. <laughs> Uh, and that is a story in the Wall Street Journal. It's a tough time to be a fan of bats. Uh, <laughs> this is a story of bat lovers who feel put upon. Their neighbors now don't want them to put out little bat houses oh. to attract bats in their yard. <laughs> and I say, yeah, it's a hard time to be a fan of bats. That is a correct response. And you guys need to just read the room and chill and be quiet about bats for a while. <laughs> The originators of this global pandemic. We're just, yeah, we're against them in the moment, and that's fine. <laughs> uh, that that hits home because uh, uh, one of our sons is a great fan of bats, so I'll have to tell David to uh, calm down and, here. And, and what I, I know they're important; they pollinate a lot of flowers and everything. What, but just and and pick your moment. And just guess, Batman is going to be next, right? You know, there will be some sort of Batman angle next in pop culture. <laughs> one of the people quoted in this story is vehemently anti-Batman. <laughs> Because he made his life up of a fear of bats. You guys got to calm down. (laughs) Uh, So, Addie, help us out here with your favorite story. I have no idea how to follow that one. Um, (laughs) So I I will say I have 
had a week of reading a lot less news than normal because uh, the BuzzFeed News Union has been in bargaining meetings with our Ooh. management all week um, uh-huh. over over cost saving and job saving measures. Um, I'm on our bargaining committee, and so I've been doing that uh, all day, every day. And so I thought I would take this moment to say, unionize your workplace. Um, but mm-hmm. there was one thing I read this week uh, in, in between that that made me smile. Um, I'm a huge Katie Weaver fan um, who is now writing at the New York Times. Um, and she wrote a piece this week uh, that is headlined to compare an apple to a submarine. And um, the the sort of premise of this piece is that the founder of Quibi um, recently said that it was ridiculous to compare Quibi, this, you know, uh, mm-hmm. recently launched short video app to TikTok. He said it's like comparing an apple to a submarine. <laughs> so Katie Weaver in classic Katie Weaver fashion said, all right, I will compare an apple to a submarine. <laughs> and for several thousand words, um, you know, did some reporting, talked to um, an expert on apples and an expert on submarines and compared them um, <laughs> for thousands of words in the New York Times. Oh. Um, and, and you know, sort of comes to this verdict about how you can indeed compare apples to submarines. Right. Um, and oh. it, it, it's just really great. It's classic Katie Weaver. Um, and And I encourage everyone to read it. Uh, I'm going to go back and read it, but to me, it just proves that, that it is true during this coronavirus pandemic. Some people have too much time on their hands, right? Yes. <laughs> so, well, uh, thank you all. My favorite story is not my favorite story. It's really my least favorite story of the week, but but I want to mention it anyhow. And that is the news we got this week, uh, that CBS News is letting Mark Noller go. Um, Mark Noller, for those of you, I'm sure any of you who follow the White House, know Mark Noller. He, you know his voice. It's a very distinct voice. Uh, and you know his reporting. Um, in my time at the White House, Mark Noller was one of the guys, one of the real best reporters in the room, uh, one of the guys you could always depend on. He asked the most penetrating questions on behalf of CBS News. Uh, and he was the resident librarian, uh, if you will. Anytime you needed to know any little factlet like how many times Obama had played golf. He knew it right on the tip of his tongue. How many times Obama had failed to answer a question about gun control? Mark Noller would know it. You could ask him how many times Barack Obama had worn that particular tie. Mark Noller would know it. All those kind of little factlets that uh, colored everybody's reporting. And Mark Noller uh, was the source and general, generously um, shared uh, his research with anybody in the Washington press corps. So um, Mark Noller, we won't be hearing from him anymore. Fortunately, he is not a victim of the coronavirus pandemic, but unfortunately, he is a victim of the stupidity of CBS News. So here, here to uh, Mark Noller. And thank you, Addie Baird. Thank you, Jason Dick from Roll Call. Thank you, Sam Baker. Quickly, how can people follow you and find you, uh, Jason? It's uh, I'm on Twitter at Jason J. Dick. Okay. Uh, and Sam Baker? I am at Sam underscore Baker. At Sam underscore Baker. How about you, Eddie Baird? I am on Twitter at Addie S. Baird. There you go. And you can find me on Twitter at Bill Press Pod, at Bill Press Pod. Uh, thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, and uh, thanks to our panel. We hope that if you... Uh, will do us a favor if you haven't already done so please subscribe to the bill press pod that really helps us out just wherever you're listening to this podcast pull up the bill press pod click on subscribe you are in tell your friends to do all the same and follow all of us on twitter follow me on twitter at bill press pod our next podcast our early next week with bakari sellers from cnn who has a new book out called my vanishing country looking forward to that looking forward to seeing all of you again on the next edition of the Bill Press Pod.